Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. First of all, I got to say, in case I didn't geek out enough about it earlier, I freaking love this cover. I don't know why. I'm I'm a I'm just a fanatic for nice covers and this thing is tight. Yeah, Ron Ron Earl Phillips who's the publisher of Shotgun Honey um does the cover designs and he's a genius. If you look at other ones that he's done over the past decade or so, um I think a few of them have even been nominated for design awards, but generally um yeah, he does an amazing job. He's got a great aesthetic and a visual sense. Wait a minute, you're telling me that Ron is Bad Fido? Yes. The secret is that. <laughs> Cuz you know, and I think that's cool. Everybody, you know, you got to have a you got to have a catchy name to uh, to be able to do your thing and then uh, you know, maybe you want to keep autonomy cuz and you said his title at Shotgun Honey was what again? He's he's the publisher of Shotgun Honey, but he also does the design for the covers. He um yeah. <laughs> Got it. So this is his baby. Okay, we're going to talk about Shotgun Honey because uh, I have had a, a number of people sent my way from Shotgun Honey, and I want to think who did it start with? JB Stevens, maybe? Yeah, probably. That sounds about right. Uh, yeah, he he's like he got all up on my grill, and we're like, yeah, come on, and 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 he was the first one to approach me, and he's the last one that's going to be on the calendar. I don't quite understand that. Maybe he's just that busy. <laughs> No, he's, I mean, he's, he's, he's usually juggling on juggling a lot of balls. He's actually from a kind of a business of writing standpoint, JB's actually really amazing. He, um, has all these systems worked out for like newsletter uptake and, and subscribers and everything else. Like he's, he's a real, it'll be an interesting conversation with him when you have it just because he, um, is an entire fond of knowledge about the, the publishing process and everything else. I've really liked interacting with him. And he is self-published or traditional. He is traditionally published through shotgun honey. His next book, which I believe is a therapeutic death is coming out relatively soon, I think. And he has a number of short stories to his credit in, in various magazines. Um, yeah, I, I, he's, he, I don't believe he's gone the self publishing route. Okay. So <clears throat> this is my ignorance. I'm going to admit it here first time on my show because I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not always the sharpest knife in the drawer. Nick. Well, neither me. Um, <laughs> and that is that I thought shotgun honey originally, I'm going to get some beef on this. I'm sure was a independent label. Like, like I, I I'm David, I go out and start a label called David's books. Mm -hmm. And then I go, Hey, Nick, want to be part of David's books? And you go, sure. I don't know anything about how the system works. So count me in. And then I put your book out and I'll drop the dime on kind of promoting it for you and so forth, but you'll help along. But, but it's still, you know, I'm going to take care of the printing and all that stuff. So I'm basically, I'm a, self-published guy helping another self-published guy, but shotguns actually super legit. Yeah, it's, it's super legit. I mean, they've been nominated for and, and won various awards. I mean, there's a whole infrastructure um, in terms of the editorial process and so on. In addition to the books, there's also the shotgun honey website, which runs crime fiction. Um, I think at a cadence of once a week, and that has an entire editorial board called the gauntlet, which, you know, 
obviously evaluates and edits and so on all the content that gets published through that. So yeah, no, it's 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 a real concern. It's a, it's a it's a small it's a it's a small unit, but it's a it's a highly effective one. Okay, so if I have appeared ignorant on the show, I'm totally cool with that because uh, I I can be ignorant, but uh, now I know for sure. I'm 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 dialed in. Good. And Nick, you'll have to forgive. Oh. Dexter in the background. That's no, fine. Hi, Dexter. Yeah, he says hi. He, uh, you know, uh, he had day camp yesterday, and uh, I said you can't have it two days in a row, son, because you're going to break Daddy's bank. So he's home with me today. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's talk about Love and Bullets, which is this mega bomb edition. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk about that phrase in just a second, but they're they're kind of calling it a 21st century Bonnie and Clyde featuring a wisecracking duo who blasts their way from Brooklyn to Cuba and back without trying to get killed and meeting some super seedy characters along the way. And Nick, I loved it, man. Oh, I, I, it was, yeah, I, it was about as fast as I could go trying to keep up with it. <laughs> And I have I have several questions, very specific, and uh, many many comments. So thank you for joining the show today. Absolutely, thanks for having me. Sean Cosby, S. A. Cosby says calls it visceral and vivacious. Mm. That in my world equals bam. <laughs> Publishers Weekly says it's for diehard Kolakowski fans. Now, Nick, do me a favor and describe to me. In the best way you can, what is a Kolakowski fan? And I consider myself now one of those. Um, let's see. How would I how would I describe the fan? I mean, people who are big fans of combining, I guess, kind of rambunctious violence with comedy with a certain sense of pathos at the same time. Um, I, I, th- I think would sort of be the, 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 the stereotypical fan if I were to, to try to imagine such a creature. Um it's it, there, there's there is a lot of rambunctious crime fiction out there, and I'm an avid consumer of it, and I love it. I try to kind of give a sort of undercurrent of darkness to everything, just because I mean, you know, violence can be entertaining, and you know, there is a heavy comedic element to it. But ultimately, I mean, it's it's fictional characters' lives, but it's still sort of lives in play. So I try to balance out kind of the humor and everything else with with enough. Um, I guess, you know, not, not morbidity, but something, just something to kind of give it a little bit more weight to it. Um, and I, I guess the fans are the people who find that, that kind of that duality appealing. There is a moment, I, I won't do it justice, but I, 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 there was a moment where this uh, main character is in a situation that he's been chased by this guy and the guy has been hurt in a wreck and they've been shot at and the guy's laying there on the, uh, on the grass and he's, He's looking up at the the, the good guy, uh, my you know the main guy, and says, uh, "You're going to shoot me or what?" This goes on for quite some time, and and the guy's having this existential moment of like, "Well, what what is death and what is life and love? Isn't that an electrical energy exchange or something like this?" And it's going on and it's pontificating and it's hilarious and this, and you can just see this guy sweating bullets and he's bleeding and he's got glass in his face and he's like. Come on, the waiting, it's killing me. And he's like, no, I don't know. Maybe I should just let it go. And I think his phone rings and he <laughs> takes a conversation. He goes, excuse me just a second. And he takes the call, la, 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 la. And then he turns around and he just goes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that character, the assassin character who you're referring to, who is yes. um, 
it's funny because sometimes with narrative voice and writing in general, yeah, you know, obviously sometimes it's a struggle and, you know, you, you go through multiple drafts and you don't quite get it right and so on. That is the one character voice and any of my books are short stories or it just kind of flows out. There's just something about that personality that, um, for better or worse, I sort of really sync with. So yeah, all of those scenes, like just it was, it, almost like automatic writing. I mean, that, that stuff just came out. I really, I, I, I that, that character is my favorite aspect of the book. It is the best part of the book. Um, and for some reason, I have a very tight affinity for wisecracking uh, murderous scandals who just want to uh, wreak mayhem along the way and yet find the comedic lift in every moment. But now the other part of that question is, uh, and, and I, I think I think I've got it, but I want to be crystal clear to my readers and we're going to circle back around later because I want to reference it once again. But what makes this a mega bomb edition? Good question. Um, so, Love and Bullets was originally published as three novellas from 2017 through 2019. There was a brutal bunch of heartbroken saps, followed by Slaughterhouse Blues, followed by Main Bad Guy. And originally that was, you know, the three short novellas, and, and that was sort of going to be it for it. Um, and then... In 2019, we were approached by Surkamp Verlag, which is a big German publisher that wanted to release kind of a combined edition of the books. Um, and so it gave me the opportunity to take all three novellas and rewrite them and, you know, kind of create a more cohesive a single larger novel out of it. Um, it was published in Germany in 2020. It actually became like a, a pretty, I mean, it, it did really well over there. Um to the point where even a, there was a German TV program that like did a skit on it where like, for example, they they, they dressed someone up, a, up as Elvis and like there was, they, they did a kidnapping scene. So, I mean, it, it did really well, which gave shotgun honey, the idea of also releasing kind of the giant combined mega bomb edition. Um, and the, the privilege that I had and, and a lot of writers don't get this chance is now I could tinker with it yet again, which is amazing, you know, and any writer will tell you like the ability to kind of just go through and, and relentlessly fix it is, is an opportunity you don't uh, pass up on. So I added another probably about 25% to the book on top of that. So that's what made it the mega bomb. I mean, originally it was a pretty thick book to begin with. And then I got the chance to like, okay, I'm going to build all this connective tissue, rejigger the ending a little bit and um, basically create a doorstop. So. Okay, so that's what uh, written and remastered means. Mm -hmm, exactly. And also, yeah, and I, and I, I, I jumped ahead of myself because I was going to sit here. Uh, there are other titles of, of books that you've written, and you jumped me a little bit there, but it's like a brutal bunch of heartbroken saps, slaughterhouse blues, main bad guy, mm -hmm. Boise long pig hunting club, mm -hmm. <laughs> rattlesnake rodeo, Maxine unleashes doomsday, an absolute unit. Mm -hmm. And as I was reading this book, which is broken into three specific parts with really cool titles. And as I'm reading the titles, I'm like, geez, uh, Nick should have made these standalone books. And it wasn't until I was done that I'm like, hey, dork, wake up. That's what he did. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it was, uh, I mean, I loved all those titles. Um, a brutal bunch of heartbroken saps. The, the origin of that title, I, when I wrote the first novella, I struggled to come up with a, with any sort of title. And then, um, uh, a mutual friend of my wife's and I, uh, wrote a long essay in, um, the, there's there's a section in the New York Times where people talk about like their their failed romances or how you know they they found their life partner or whatever, um, 
and it was it was this long essay about how heartbreak and so on. And my wife, who was who was brushing her teeth as I was kind of reading excerpts from this article out loud, suddenly shouted, "All of you writers are just a brutal bunch of heartbroken saps!" Because our friend had like you know kind of poured out their entire relationship in print and like completely decimated their ex partner and everything like that. So and I was like, "Yes, that's it. That's the title." Like I'm not going to go with something generic. It's gonna it's got to be that. Um, and then. Yeah, Slaughterhouse Blues and Main Bag, I were just titles I've been wanting to use for years. You know, you just, you hear these phrases in the air and you write them down like, oh, that make a good title sure. someday. And then, bam, put them in. So, uh, wife is G. Yes. Yeah, Gina. To which the book is dedicated. Yeah. Uh -huh. uh, how cool is that? And I love the fact that that synchronicity, um, spontaneity, when that happens, that's one of my highlights in life. And my wife and I have that same kind of synergistic relationship. She'll she'll make a comment. Matter of fact, one day she made a comment, side note. We'd come in from running a half marathon or something. And uh, as we tend to do, we come in the garage and we close the garage and we rip all our clothes off and throw it in the wash before we come into the house. And and I said, well, how you doing? I'm like, this should be a podcast. She, and she goes, yeah, we'll just call it Naked Monday. Nice, And that became the title of my uh, podcast for uh, almost a year until I went, no one quite ever got what Naked Monday was about. That's a great mm -hmm. title. I mean, you could, I mean, that, that, that would apply to so many different things. It's just, yeah, it's just, there's a synergy. Yeah. There's a, there's a crackle to it. It's great. <laughs> okay, good. I'll keep it then. Um, okay. Yet I digress. This show is about you. Now I do want to talk about this because I love New York. Mm-hmm. I know it sounds like a bumper sticker, but how much do you think, and and what part of town do you live in? Just give me a ballpark. We're in Long Island City, which is former industrial neighborhood, now the fastest growing neighborhood in America, or something crazy. It's right on the East River. I mean, if there if there wasn't an East River in the way, we would be in we would be Midtown. Got it. Got it. Okay. How do you think living in New York City helps your writing? It helps because I mean, there's there's sort of endless material that comes. You know, you just just simply by walking down the street, you see enough oddities. Um, you know, and people complain that you know all you know all the all the roughness and all the weird edges have been gradually sanded out of New York over the past however many years. I don't think that's necessarily true. I mean, it might you might need to be walking you know on on the Lower East Side at two a.m. or whatever, but you will find like these interesting patterns and weirdnesses, and you'll overhear phrases and so on. I generally walk around, or I used to walk around with a paper notebook. Now I just use my iPhone's note thing, and whenever I see something or hear something or whatever that's just interesting, I'll pluck it and then. From that sort of mosaic document, I mean, a lot of that just sort of gets seeded into to stories. So, I mean, that's that's sort of the most vital element um, that I think the, the city lends to things. The other thing, too, is that there's a great community of writers here, which I mean, before I lived in New York, I lived in D.C. And D.C. had a kind of a small writing community, but nothing like New York does. New York has, well, I guess a number of cities around the country have this, but there's, there's there are regular noirs at the bar here where crime fiction writers gather and, and read their latest works and, and network for want of a better term and so on. Um, you know, and once you sort of build that community, it improves your writing because you start sharing drafts around and stuff like that. So that part of it's also really vital. Um, you know, and with the pandemic, the interesting thing about the pandemic is a lot of that moved online. I mean, now there's, there's Twitter, there's discord servers. And so like we've managed to sort of replicate a community, um, online but it's 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 not quite the same as being able to kind of tuck into a bar with like 25 other crime fiction writers and spend the night you know going through stuff yeah uh 
There is a noir at the bar in Los Angeles, isn't there? There is. Um, a number of cities have yeah. them. People spring them up. I mean, there, there is, there's been a couple in Jersey. There's been a couple in the D.C. area in the last couple of years. Um, BoucherCon, the, the big crime fiction conference, a lot of people go to that. And then there's a noir at the bar there. And I think people get the idea from there, for example. And then they go and they start them up in Milwaukee and Chicago and points north, south, east, and west. Awesome. Well, I'm in San Diego, 90 minutes south of L.A., and I'm just going to have to jump in the car and drive up for North Bar in L.A. because uh, San Diego is cool and hip and laid back and groovy and all that, but it is not necessarily a raging bastion of uber creativity. <laughs> I'll probably get shit for that, but, uh, you know, it could use a little kick in the pants, I suppose. Maybe I'll just have to start it myself, huh? Yeah, you could. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I think that's what people do. I think they like, you know, they want to start something. So they, they, they post it up on Facebook and, and I don't know, staple a flyer to the, to the supermarket wall or, or, or whatever many, but there's some good, there's some really good, interesting, fascinating writers around San Diego. I mean, there's, there's Brian Asman who wrote, um, Nunchuck City and, uh, a couple of other books that do really well. He's kind of like in the, 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 bizarro crime horror genre. I mean, yeah, more of them will come to mind. I mean, we're everywhere. We're like, I mean, it's a, it's a whole okay. secret society of writers. We are everywhere. Indeed. Yeah. Brian Anson. Is that what you said? A S M A N. Yeah. No, he's, he's really good. I think he, I think he lives in San Diego. There's a couple of other folks as well. Um, okay. but yeah, no, if you, if you put the feelers out there, they will come. I mean, they will, um, they'll drive, they'll drive many hours. Okay, well, then I will take my foot out of my mouth and insert it up my butt and uh, do something about that. The uh, reason I asked that about New York is, and I think I shared this with somebody recently, when I lived in Manhattan, I lived there in 95 and then again in 2016, and there is something magical. I can't describe it, but here's the best I can do. There's something about... I would come home from my radio show back in 95 and, you know, you're on the bubble from 5 a.m. till 10 and you're just, you know, cranking out music and interviewing people. So I would walk home from down uh, in uh, Greenwich Village up to the Upper West Side and just to decompress. And then I'd go home, open a window and I would just let the sounds of the city wash over me and I would crank out just bam, 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 bam. And I don't know what it is, man, but there's some kind of electricity there that makes it happen it, it it it's absolutely there and i mean it's it's the side consequence of having 10 million people squeezed into a really really tiny space no it's just i mean you know just the the, the sort of a natural frisson i mean there, there, there's there's actual electricity in the air it's um yeah no it's it, it's an amazing place even even when there's nobody on the streets you still kind of you know and it's really late at night you can still feel it like kind of in the air like this, yeah. this crackle of proximity almost that you're on this little set of islands with all these souls Okay, you've given me an idea for two different uh, uh, titles, Crackle of Electricity and mm -hmm. Rambunctious Violence in Comedy. <laughs> yeah, use them. All right, so back to uh, Love and Bullets. This book has it all, folks. It's got, it's got action, it's got romance, it's got guns, it's got a wicked tough wisecracking broad and a ball-busting dude, plus enough violence and revenge to satisfy everyone, including the family. Gather around, won't you? Yeah. <laughs> Read a J um, for more. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, a lot of people would say, uh, some people would say, 
when referring to pulp that, oh, oh, you write that. But, you know, I'm looking at some of your creds and, you know, Washington Post, North American Review, uh, your stories have appeared some pretty handsome places, which doesn't just happen and is not the easiest thing in the world to do. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would. I mean, uh, my I've my day job is as a journalist, and so um, I'm a, I'm never I'm never not writing. And you know, it just it's just yeah. I just I've, I've spent when I was younger. This is actually in a fit of true insanity. I mean, I had a resolution in my twenties where I would pitch one story to one place every day, and so on. And so inevitably, I mean, just by sheer law of averages, eventually you're going to plunk into a very broad range of publications for a very broad range of fiction and nonfiction. If you do that, so that um, that sort of explains my spread. Um, I think I forget which writer, but some writer has a bio, which I, it still sticks in my mind to this day or something to the effect of has appeared only once in a suspiciously high number of publications. I think a lot of writers like fall in that category where if you're an aggressive pitcher and like you're, you're a really prolific writer, like eventually you'll appear in most places at least once. Well, good. This answers uh, begins to answer a question that I've got. I would love to know because I don't know how to do this. Let's say, for instance, <clears throat> and I'll use Washington Post. I'm sure your proximity at the time yeah. probably helped that. And I'm glad you answered my next question, which was, what is your daytime job? So yeah. as a journalist, I know that that helps. Could somebody like me, uh, if I have, is it that I had need to have written a vast number of uh, articles or shorts or novellas or fill in the blank in order to then uh, be received? Or is it my ability to pitch and yeah, pitch to the right person? So with that's, I mean, that, that is the question. Um, the Washington post was kind of a unique circumstance because what I did, I did the one thing they tell you never, ever, ever do as a writer, which is write pieces on spec and send them. And I mean, it's good advice because, you know, obviously, you know, you do all this research, you commit all of this time. And then if the pitches re- or if, if the articles rejected after you spend all this time in it, I mean, that that's time and money down the drain. But, um, in, in the case of the post, what happened was my, my entry, this was, let's see, 20, this would have been 2005, 2006, but Darren Aronofsky, the director of Requiem for a Dream, Pie, The Fountain, a bunch of other um, highly disturbing art house movies that I love deeply, was he came to, D, he came to D.C. to launch The Fountain. And I read that he was in town. I had always wanted to write for the Washington Post. And so I basically conned my way into an interview with him. I showed up. I was I, 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 I'm a little bit blurry on what exactly I said to get past the gatekeepers. But I ended up having dinner with him and a bunch of other journalists from a bunch of other publications. Thankfully, there was nobody from the Washington Post who was already there because otherwise that would have become a hilarious comedy of errors very quickly. But I got the in. I got the interview. Um, I wrote it up that night. Like I basically rushed home and typed it and sent it to their weekend section. And then once that happened and once they accepted and paid me for it, et cetera, the editors there decided like, Oh, here's this lunatic. He'll do anything on short notice. And so they started sending me, you know, I, I interviewed Craig Ferguson. I interviewed, um, Lawrence, Wright, I just, just a bunch of other people. And they sort of, once you, once you're known, 
sort of player, then, you know, they, they tend to use you over and over again because, you know, one thing, and I can say this as a occasional magazine editor, one thing that editors really like is having kind of a reliable person that you can just call up and be like, do this and they'll do it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's writing the article in advance and like kind of doing all of your work and committing that is generally what they don't recommend doing, but perversely enough, it's always worked for me. Uh, and that's how I've got my foot in the door in a lot of places. Um, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm necessarily the best example to follow. <laughs> okay. I'll take it though. Mm. Uh, and I also think that, uh, you know, courage and boldness is rewarded if you're not an whole, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I, I definitely uh, agree with that. Yeah. Uh, plus a, a max, a maxim in Hollywood is that people like to work with people that they like, and it seems ridiculously simple minded, but it's true. I mean, think about it. You, you want to work with somebody that, you know what? I like that Nick guy. He's a fun guy. He's, he's on time. He shows up. He makes me laugh. I mean, it's a win-win. Definitely. I mean, the, you know? the people in, I mean, to, in terms of like the crime fiction world, I mean, the people who I've known who have achieved like the most success, like kind of the big book deals and kind of networked effectively and everything that have always been the nicest people. I mean, I've never, whereas people who tend to be, you know, kind of a little bit sociopathic or whatever, like sometimes they might, you know, score one good book deal or, you know, make kind of a crucial connection or whatever, but they never last very long. It's always the nice people who seem to kind of have sustained careers because as you said, everyone wants to work with them. It's just, it's, it's, it's good policy. Yeah. From my shiny object apartment with a question out of nowhere, what is the only because I like the way your mind works I and I'm riveted by this story, which I know that I'm going to go back and read other ones. What is the weirdest gig job you've ever had? So when I graduated college, uh, I graduated college in 2003. So it wasn't, it wasn't like a 2009 economy, but the economy was still a little bit down. Um, and through a, a, a chain of hilarious circumstances, I actually ended up working as a subcontractor for the State Department's Bureau of North Africa and the Middle East. Um, and what we were tasked with doing and the, the, the contractor I was working for, which was a publishing company in D.C., we were tasked with creating a glossy sort of Esquire GQ style magazine in Arabic that was kind of uh, imagine like, you know, kind of like obviously, you know, a magazine like GQ, but without any nudity or sex or profanity sure. or anything like that, completely sanitized, but, you know, still with the same celebrity interviews and fashion tips and everything like that. So we produced these magazines, which the magazine was called high. And we, we did that for about a year and a half. Um, full, beautiful production team, like really skilled New York journalists working on it. We had somebody who was our celebrity interviewer, like lots of money. Um, when we produced each issue, it was then printed in Manila at a government facility, loaded onto C-130s, flown into the Middle East where it was handed out in Baghdad, you know, Cairo, all kind of, you know, throughout Jordan, all the major spots. And then that was supposed to win hearts and minds. Um and it was it was one of those circumstances where you're kind of like, all right, I mean, somebody thought this was a good idea and we're rolling with it because it's interesting to work on. But this is like it was almost like Dr. Strangelove in a certain sense, like just like this completely weird thing. Um, I wrote about it for Fast Company several years later. It was just kind of like, you know, public diplomacy is good. And, you know, you obviously 
you know, if, if, if you take it at its sort of surface value, you know, kind of ex- extending like this, trying to explain American culture is, is potentially a good thing, but it just, it, it, nobody was ever quite sure what was going on. In the meantime, we were burning a lot of money. Um, at one point, we accidentally included an image of a woman with bare shoulders and in Saudi Arabia, they actually burned it on the runway. The committee for the promotion of virtue and suppression of vice, like poured gasoline over a giant pallet of it and lit it on fire. We're watching this on video and like the bowels of the state department, like, and you just can't believe like this is your life. So I would say that's probably the weirdest, probably the, easily the weirdest job I ever had. Um, off the top of my okay. head. I mean, there, there's been all sorts of weirdo. When you're a professional writer, you end up doing all sorts of weirdo stuff. Yeah. But yeah, that's, that probably takes the cake. Okay, two things. I can't top that. Number two, uh, number one. Number two, uh, I have to branch that off one more step uh-huh. because you're such a great storyteller. Who is one of the wackiest characters you grew up with? It could be when you were a kid, you were in college, it could be, but just somebody who was like, that guy's just like a half a bubble off plum, you know? Oh, yeah. It's um, a carpenter reference. <laughs> so... The weirdest, oh man, I mean, the, the thing is that inevitably these people all end up actually in the books in in kind of one form or another, like not necessarily taken whole cloth and transplanted to the book, but sort of elements of their DNA it ends up informing the characters. Um, That's exactly where I'm headed. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, Bill in Love and Bullets is based very heavily on a gentleman who I worked with for a number of years who sort of was, he kind of engaged, I mean, saying that that very sort of luxury obsessed, um, you know, kind of always not, he wasn't an outright con man, but he was certainly somebody who, you know, like if there was any sort of hustle to be hustled, he would be the one hustling it as fast as humanly possible. I mean, like, so working with him was um, a really bizarre trip and we had some weird adventures together um, in terms of like the, the storytelling. So this guy and I, we used to run a cigar magazine together. This is another one of those kind of weird jobs where you, you know, you kind of, end up doing things for reasons completely outside of your control. But we were in um, the Bahamas and we had been partying the night before with a bunch of people. We had just been to Cuba. We had just done this huge, ferociously difficult assignment in Cuba, gotten out. We were in the Bahamas and we were going to fly the next day back to the States. So um, I don't, I'm not really a huge drinker and I kind of went to bed relatively early cause I was just bushed. It was like, we had done five countries and however many days, you know, and you know, the photographer, or the other writer, everyone went to bed. And then the, my friend was in the, the room next to me and there was a connecting door between the two rooms. He had way too much to drink and who knows whatever else he was consuming. But the previous occupant of his room had set the the clock radio for some absurdly hour, like 6.30 a.m. or whatever. So the radio clicks on at 6.30. He is like still sort of completely addled out of his mind when this loud church music, because it was a Sunday, starts blasting from the radio. He's not sure what's going on. He's still like kind of out of his mind, but he thinks for some reason that it's coming from my room. So he blearily stumbles out of bed, goes to the connecting door and starts ramming it with his fist while screaming, turn down that church music because he didn't realize it was coming from the radio in his own room. 
I snap away because someone's pounding on the door. I think we're still in Cuba and it's, you know, La Policia is trying to kick down the door. So I bolt out of bed. And this was this was back when, you know, I would keep my jeans right by my bed, you know, just in case I had to make a hasty exit from something. The window is open because sure. it's the Bahamas and it's warm. I'm throwing on my jeans. I'm still like only maybe 10% awake. I'm stumbling across the room as fast as I can because I'm like on instinct going to go out the window and like just try to like kind of clear the zone before like whatever – is on the other side of that door, blast their way through it. And I literally have both of my legs out the window. When I see a cruise ship, I'm like, Oh no, like this is, this is all wrong. I, I sort of like, you know, my, my instincts are no longer controlling me like a puppet. Um, and then I went back inside. I started yelling them through the door to go back to bed. But I mean, people like that, you know, who you grew up with or who you work with. Yeah. I mean, you know this. I mean, with writers, sure. you, you end up using it all. So that guy ended oh, up yeah, yeah. Uh, in a big way is bill. All right. Well, yeah, Bill was my fave and I completely get that now. And, uh, you know, we all do that. We take those, uh, we take little bits and pieces of the, the psychopaths that we hung out with or the partiers or the guys that the cool guys, like I was never particularly athletic. So I always wanted to be, you know, cool with the athletes, but uh, I realized early on, the only way I could be cool with them was to make the girls laugh. So that's how I worked my way. It's a good strategy because I could yeah, it, it worked well because yeah. I couldn't. Yeah, it, I'm like, okay, if I can't dribble a ball and chew gum at the same time, and I've got really bad acne, and the uh, I can at least make them laugh. And you know, when the acne cleared up, I was, I was, I was in. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, like that's like make it, make them laugh. That's like the key strategy. It'll get you into any place. It'll get you hopefully out of any place. I mean, yeah, no, it's 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 per- that was definitely the right tactic for you to pursue. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, before we take a quick break, I have one more question here because I, I, I want to know, uh, and I feel like I've known you for so long. This is so funny. <laughs> but tell me what the what, what's the ultimate, if and I'm going to put this in quotes, the ultimate dream come true for Nick Kolakowski. Like, for instance, it could be in the next five years, ten years, fifteen. You could pick one of those segments. But like, what's what's that thing that you're achieving uh, for? You're reaching for that you hope to achieve. I want to, I've taken a couple of aborted runs at this in the last several years. I want to write like the big doorstop historical thriller book, like set in like the 19th century, like kind of like what Neil Stevenson did with the Baroque cycle, where you just have like, you know, one of those big lists where it clearly took the author like years to research and years to write. And it's sort of out there and it's kind of like a definitive statement. Um, and like I said, I've taken, I mean, e- you know that like most with the exception of love and bullets as a combined edition, most of my books tend to be very short. So I just, my, my goal, my dream is to like actually write something that's like suitably massive. You can kill a Bronx cockroach with it. Like, you know, like we're, we're talking like (laughs) serious weights. That's, that's, that's definitely um, kind of one of my longer term goals. Like five to 600 pages at least. Yeah. Yeah. Like one of those things where people are like, Oh my God, I can't believe you spent so many years on it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. And, and, and are you working on that now, even in little increments while you're writing these, uh, rapid fire, uh, kind of books, or do you, do you say to yourself, okay, when I get to this point, then I'm going to sit down and really hunker down and then carve out this period of two, three, four, whatever years and make it happen. I've been, I've been researching it for a re- like actively researching it for a long time, but, the, but that also becomes its own delaying tactic in a certain way. You always have to, there's always more research you can do. And so if, eventually I'm going to have to just be like, okay, I'm going to carve out this time 
and we're actually going to do it. And it's going to be a heavy lift, but I just have to like kind of mentally reconcile myself with that fact. Okay. Well, I applaud you and I cheer you on. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a, a short break. And when we come back, we're going to play a quick round of rapid fire questions. I am sure Thanks. Nick knows about this. So stay with us. Uh-oh. <laughs> and we're back with Nick Kolakowski, and uh, I love this guy's name, author of Love and Bullets, the Megabomb edition, as well as many other titles you are sure to dig into. I see that they're all, I was spending quite a bit of time, Nick, this morning looking at uh, Amazon. Looks like they carry everything of yours. They do. And so go to the author's page there. But time now for Rapid Fire Questions. <laughs> Super easy, lots of fun, nobody gets hurt. It's a relief. Number one, and this is perfect for you living in uh, Long Island City-ish. Um, you and a pal are playing some pool, drinking some beers, mm-hmm. hanging out in a neighborhood bar when a bar when a fight looks like it's about to break out. Come to learn that the enormous, mean, and ugly bouncer thinks you started the melee, and so he's coming after you. Suddenly, your pal, just seconds before batshit crazy guy comes over to ask you to dance, your pal tosses you one item for you to fight this character with. And you can choose from any one of these three items and tell me why you chose it. Number one, a number two pencil, the caveat being that it is freshly sharpened and has an eraser. Number two, an old-fashioned bottle opener, the one with that pointy end. Or number three, your pal pulls off his 1970s super-wide, worn-out leather belt, complete with tacky brass buckle, and hands it to you. Which one would you choose? Oh, I would definitely go with the belt just because, you know, it's it's got some reach to it. So, I mean, at the very least, I mean, obviously, when faced with, like, you know, a, a 500-pound, you know, pituitary accident who's really interested in popping off my head, like, you know, the, the cap off a Coke bottle, I would have absolutely no chance. I took, you know, some kung fu and martial arts in high school and you know the sum total of my experience with that was being really good at punching myself in the face by accident so i would i would be dead in like about 3.2 seconds dealing with that guy however with a belt i could swing it wildly like flail it you know spastically around enough to like kind of buy some space as the guy came charging in and then that would hopefully buy me enough seconds to use my superior speed to sidestep and run out the door as fast as humanly possible. So I, yeah, I definitely go with the belt. Awesome. Excellent. Just as I somewhat expected. <laughs> Number two, you and I are going to meet up in New York in late May mm-hmm. for the 17th edition of Thriller Fest. Oh. It's put together by my friend KJ Howe and a bunch of super studded authors and rock star volunteers. And you get to choose two people to join the panel of discussions. Now, they can be living or dead. Who will they, these two people be and why? Oh, that's the, now that you've introduced the dead element, that's, that's really impressive. Um, I would have to go with Jim Thompson, writer of The Getaway, The Grifters and other great books as, as my dead person to kind of show up. And I say that because at BoucherCon and all these other crime fiction conferences, the, the surest and easiest way to start like a, a, a real verbal brawl is to mention Thompson's name, because you have people who are and I count myself among the massive Thompson adherents. They, they love every word that he wrote, even though some of his words got pretty weird. Um, you know, and they, they defend him as like sort of arguably the best crime fiction writer out there. And then there are people who hate him. I once a prominent 
Canadian critic uh, once referred to him as trash in a room full of probably about 200 BoucherCon attendees. So, I mean, his wow. presence at a panel would basically guarantee that, you know, there'd be at the very least like some super interesting discussion. Um, and then in terms of living people, um, S.J. Rosen, who's who's a mystery and thriller writer, um, she is she's just got like the, the best reading voice. She's got this like really raw, sharp voice. And like, she's really good at questions and panels. She's really funny. So I would, I would, I, she would be my second pick. Exceptional answer. And by the way, will you be a thriller fest? Do you think? Yes. So I think this year. Yeah. Here? Yeah. Knock on wood and, awesome. and pending, obviously the, the situation, I think yes. COVID bullshit. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You, you and I will definitely get together and uh, share a beverage. Absolutely. Yeah. Number three on rapid fire questions. There is an afterlife of your imagination's making, and you get to return as any one of these three professions. Which would you choose and why? You can be number one, an unbelievably rich and sexy rock star, in case you weren't already. <laughs> number two, a world renowned scientist who surpasses both Einstein and Leonardo da Vinci in smarts, or a writer who may or may not ever really make a living. Ooh, that's a that's a that's a real tough one. Um I would go with the scientist just because I mean if you invent something that, you know, people are that changes the world radically or people are still relying on like 500 years, like who wouldn't want to invent like I don't know, the the, the longer lasting light bulb or something like that just because, you know, sure. yeah, like 8 <laughs> decades from now people are still, you know, relying on you to try to find their car keys. I mean, like it's just yeah, I would, I would, I would go with that. I mean, the rock star element is definitely appealing potentially, but I've never read a biography of a rock star where they weren't sick of it after a relatively short period of time. I mean, like, you know, and I, I used to interview celebrities. And so one thing I used to ask sure. them is that, you know, do you, is, is it all that it's cracked up to be? And more than one of them said something to the effect of that they liked the money and the access, but they could deal without the fame. And so I think, you know, if you're, the world famous scientists you walk down the street, most people aren't going to know who you are. I think a rock star, you start to feel like you're trapped in a gilded cage after a while, but I wouldn't sure. not take it. So yeah, but scientists definitely. Excellent. You know, it's funny. Uh, my wife and I went down to, uh, up to Anaheim to see, uh, America perform. Mm -hmm. uh, we hadn't seen, we never had seen America. We love America. So we got there and it was amazing. A couple of observations I made. One was I said, you can pick any random America song you want. And I said, can you imagine singing that same song over and over and over and over and over and over again for decades after decades? And she's like, no. And I'm like, and even worse, and I'm not going to mention any names. This guy couldn't hit those notes anymore. Oh. I mean, he couldn't hit them with a golf club. You know, he, this is just no way. And each time he tried to hit it, you're like, oh, oh. And then I'm thinking, which is worse, having to have sung those that many times or having sung them when you were at the height of your career and you were really jamming it. And now, decades later, you can't you can't 
even reach those. So, yeah, that's, I mean, that's the thing about it too. I mean, like not only do you, I mean, when you're a writer, the benefit is you only got to produce it once. You only, I mean, like once it's down right. on the page, it's down on the page and, and, and that's that. But if you're, you're a singer, you have to sing it with enthusiasm. You got to sing it every day for the rest of yeah. your life or, you know, at least a few times a year, as if you had written it that afternoon and you really love it. Even if the la- if you're Mick Jagger, the last thing you want to do is sing satisfaction for like literally the 50,000th time. I mean, it's, it's hard. Yeah. 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 Good point. Well, as we begin to wrap up, is there, uh, I always like to, I'd like to ask guys, uh, guys and gals, especially those who, and I'll ask them from, you know, the super big guys who are New York times bestselling, they've got 20 or 30 in their queue, or they're just starting out like some of us. Um, what would you, do you have a, do you have a good rock solid piece of advice? That's kind of a no brainer. That's, that's always been true to you. And that, you know, that if you say to someone, you know, take this little piece of advice and just try to master it. What would that be? I, I mean, we touched on this earlier. I mean, I, I, I think the important thing is just to, you know, be pleasant, you know, be professional. Like, I mean, don't, don't necessarily be a doormat. Don't let yourself be run over, but, you know, being polite and professional and, and sort of just being a stand up human being will get you a long way. I mean, you might not necessarily have a good year or a deal might not come out the way that you expect it to, you know, you do have setbacks, but as long as you sort of maintain kind of, you know, a, a, a professional, like a friendly professional veneer. I mean, you can, I found that that opens more doors than anything else, you know, and you start making connections and then, you know, the next thing you know, you're, you're, you're further along than you thought you would be hopefully. Yeah. And look at you, you got them all. You got the looks, you got the talent, you got the affability. You're making me blush. (laughs) Well, Nick Olakowski, thank you so much for joining the Thriller Zone. This has been a hoot. Yeah, this has been fantastic. Thank you for having me on. This is this has been this has been amazing. I love the um, the, the the whole questions. I never had to consider like you know between equally ineffective pencil and belt, which I would choose if I was confronted with a violent bouncer. So thank you. Now now I will never get that out of my head. It might actually end up in my next book. Yeah. I don't know where I picked this up recently. I, I almost wanted to say it was your book, but somebody made a comment. A character made a comment. He said, I, I can kill you 12 ways to Sunday with a ballpoint pen. And I always thought to myself, now that I want to be able to master that ability so that if someone throws me a sharpened number two, I can equally do justice to murder and mayhem. <laughs> I think, I mean, John Wick, I mean, throughout the John Wick movies, they keep talking over and over about how he murders multiple people in a bar with a number with, I think, I think it is a number two pencil, um, a pencil yep. in the, in the words of one of the Russian characters. So I think, yeah, no, I mean, it's definitely, I mean, hopefully they actually show him. No, actually in one of the movies he does utilize a pencil to wipe someone out. So it is, it's doable. Yeah. 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 I don't know. Your your answers were perfect. Well, the book is Love and Bullets Mega Bomb Edition. Nikolakowski.com is the place you can go to learn more. Of course, Twitter in Kolakowski. Instagram is Nick Kolakowski. All of this will be printed below for your viewing and researching pleasure. But once again, Nick, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been great. The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.